Hey guys, it's Carmen Schober with the No Apologies podcast, which is the official podcast of Stasios, bold cultural commentary for curious Christians. If you're interested in more Stasios content, you can find that at www.stasios.net. That's S-T-A-S-E-O-S.net. That also has all the different podcast episodes there as well. One thing I should say before I launch into this is if you enjoy No Apologies, please do go leave us a review. That helps a lot. It helps people find the podcast. So that's a really great way that you can help us. I am here today with a very special guest. Her name is Melissa Macareg, and she is a doctor working in New York from New York. So she's quite literally been on the front lines of fighting COVID-19 in one of the most hardest hit places in the United States. Hello, Melissa. Hello. Good evening. Yes. Thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to have this conversation with me. We are going to be talking about a lot of different things, um, but with kind of a focus on mental health in some different areas and then just kind of, you know, furthering the cur- the conversation surrounding COVID-19. I actually had another doctor on two episodes ago, and that was sort of right at the beginning of all this. So it, to hear from another person how this has kind of evolved and changed and what we're, what we're worried about now. So if you would, Melissa, maybe just share a little bit about what it has been like working in New York where this has been such a severe issue. Sure. So... I'm a pediatrician and I work in an emergency room. And when COVID first started, you know, the typical pediatric cases, you know, the fevers, the colds, asthma, it started to kind of trickle down to, you know, a point where there was almost very little patience. Uh, But the adult side of the ER really started to uh, pick up. When people say the ER, I think of this one big room, but the ER, our ER particularly actually is like four different units. Mm. Um, you know, we have pediatrics, we have the ER, we have the adult side, we have a psychiatric ER side. And then we try to see, you know, we try to separate the adults, you know, who are the really sick ones, who are the really not sick ones. And, you know, when COVID hit, you know, you really had to kind of rearrange things. And anybody with a respiratory symptom, so cough, fever, runny nose, we really had to separate them from the rest of the population because we didn't know who had COVID. We kind of had to presume everybody had COVID or was exposed. You want to try to minimize that spread. And so there was some, you know, rearranging and then it really started to hit. So I actually went down for four days with, with symptoms. I tested wow. negative. I was short of breath. I was out for four. And it was sadly the third day of my illness. Was, it was actually my birthday. Oh, <laughs> and, dang it. <laughs> but, uh, I had shortness of breath. I was very exhausted. I actually, I think I slept through most of those days. Um, I tested negative, which again, I'm not sure if it was a false negative or, you know, for something else. But thankfully, I was able to come back to work after five days. And, and my first day back was a day it really hit. And one of the things we saw is um, the way our emergency room works is that if there is a really sick patient, that needs immediate medical attention or an ambulance will call in ahead of time saying, we've got this patient, this patient is sick. They'll call it overhead and they'll say like, you know, uh, team one, please go to the trauma bay for this emergency. And it got to the, you know, on a, on a bad day, you can get about, you know, 30, 30 of those overhead calls. Um, and I think, I think when I was looking at some of our stats, you know, it hit like a hundred in one day. Wow. And that's a very, you know, it's not, we're not a big hospital. So imagine, you know, spacing wise, Yeah. And imagine, and the time it takes. And so the pediatric team, um, and again, I, yes, uh, some adults are big kids, but at the same time, <laughs> a 
medical. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the medical, a lot of the medical issues are a little bit different. So, in, but in terms of emergencies, you know, it's it's always what we call like the ABCs of emergency, right? It's your airway, your breathing, and your circulation. Does the patient have an airway? Are they going to lose it? Are they breathing on their own? Are they going to stop breathing on their own soon? You know, do they have a pulse? Is blood flowing? Are they bleeding out? So, in terms of those things, you know, my team and I, we can definitely come in and help. So. Right. When we weren't patients, my team, whenever we would hear a notification, we'd go in and help out. And and just to, you know, a, pa- a very sick patient needs a lot of hands. You've got one person talking to EMS. You've got the head of the bed, which is like the boss, or we call the attending physician, who's running, or even the senior resident, who's running everything, saying this needs to be done, thinking, you know, five or eight steps ahead. And then you have someone, you have a nurse trying to put the patient on the monitor. You have someone trying to put an IV. You need someone to actually like put in the orders because things don't get done unless things are put into the electronic medical health, uh, medical record system. And then you have people calling overhead. We need x-ray to come here. We need this guy to come here. So a lot of hands need to be on deck. And then add to that, if you don't speak the patient's language, mm-hmm. someone, you know, look where I work, there's a very heavily Spanish speaking area. You got to get another doctor who's got to translate and all that stuff. So it gets, you know, a lot of hands can be needed on one deck for just one of these cases. Yeah. Now imagine being four at the same time. Yeah. Crazy. Oh my gosh. So, and so from that end, you know, watching my, my adult trained ER doctors, and these are doctors who did an, a residency in emergency medicine. I did a residency in pediatrics. Um, you know, watching them having to make these decisions was these are my these are my teammates. It was hard. It was it was hard watching. It's tiring, and um, again, you know, just for me, just to, and also as much as I don't uh, know how to manage, you know, like COPD, I can I can interpret an X-ray. I can see a patient who's really struggling, and you see them from the very beginning, and you see the initial X-rays, and you say like, wow, this patient is very very sick. And I think that was something that really startled me was how sick they were. They were coming in so, so sick. That would be hard. So many all at once and that level of sickness. Dang. And then how long did that last? Kind of that wave? So that wave lasted about maybe like two, three weeks. Okay. And and so one of the things was that the ER is always the first hit, right? Because that's where they start and they go yeah. to the ICUs. And at some point, sometimes ICUs run out of room or they're not ready and turnover. So a lot of the patients can stay in the ER for a very long time. So you get to see them. And, you know, it's like there was a, there was a time where it was so loud, you couldn't hear anything because there's ventilators going off, there's monitors going off, telephones are going off, and you can have up to like 40, 30, 30 patients to 40 patients in one in the COVID zone. Mm-hmm. And the faces, and it and it's tiring, and you're also wearing your full gear and, and, and masks, and some people had respirators, and everyone sounds like Darth Vader. So you know, <laughs> like who's saying when? And you know, it, it's tiring, and, and shifts are long. You know, um, luckily as an attending, I work anywhere between eight to nine hours, but some residents and some attendings, depending on the day or the unit, you work twelve hours. So these are you know varying long shifts, and if you can get even just five of those type of, you know, emergencies that are called overhead, you know, that's, that's a lot to deal with. Yeah. Wow. And it's tiring. It takes a lot. And, you know, we don't get paid breaks. So, you know, well, you take that. a break, man, you know, there's no designated hours. So you run, you rush, you eat, you come back. And so it was very, you know, it was hard for hard watching, you know, just watching that kind of suffering for the less, the less busy units, you know, families would constantly call, obviously, because, right. you know, love their loved ones. And they're separated in this case, they're right? Separated, yeah. Absolutely. So part of my job and part of my other teams and other units who weren't busy is our teams. And 
uh, we have to talk to the families and try to explain what's happening. Yeah. And oh that, my goodness. That's really hard. Those are yeah. really hard conversations to have. Yes. And I know you mentioned you did see a lot of people die. There was a lot of death in that three weeks. So there was. It's, yeah. I, and I worked overseas. I actually worked in Laos for about two months, and I saw I, I saw a lot of death there, and it was nothing compared to what I saw in New York in, in New York City. Wow, crazy. Well, thank you for sharing that. You know, it's not very often that I'm sure a lot of people listening to the podcast don't know someone who is who was so up close and personal to where it's been particularly bad. I personally am based in Kansas. In Kansas, you know, we've had we have a couple little hot spots, but nothing at all similar to what's going on in places like New York and Washington. So it's sobering and sad, but I'm glad you guys are on the other side of it now and hopefully staying on the we'll stay on the other side of it at least as far as people coming in with COVID-19 seems like people are optimistic that at least the curve has been flattened but kind of what we were going to talk about a little more in depth here is some of the other ramifications some of the other health ramifications of what's happening from this pandemic both for regular folks people living their lives non-medical people but also for doctors because you are a doctor you work with doctors you you can see how this is affecting doctors so just curious what your thoughts are on what other kinds of health issues we should be prepared for sure. in this phase i would say i think right now for doctors in particular and anybody in the you know doctors not just doctors doctors nurses anybody's on the front lines yeah. um front lines i think you know environmental services are the people who have to clean up after everything's been sure. done right to sanitize or else you know you can't bring a new patient in you know the pcts and come in to give ekgs you know it's a lot again lot lots of hands that we yeah. don't see no that's a good point and it's certainly not limited to doctors uh, and for us you know our clerks are the ones answering the red phones when, or you know our clerks are there's two or three clerks at a time answering the phones for you know this ambulance is coming in and they're, they're sitting in the units exposed to everything so Definitely um, not just doctors and nurses, but anybody who's had to be on the front lines. I think one of the things is PTSD and, and I would say the depression uh, for everybody. Yeah. Um, just in general, depression is pretty high ranking in, uh, in the medical field. And um, Medscape is a one of the kind of, I guess it's kind of like the news the news uh, organization for doctors in a way. Oh, okay. And they, they published that um, suicide rates among doctors mm. in general comes out to about a physician a day. That's it's actually high in any profession exactly it's it's a lot and so you already have you know you already have high rates of depression you know depression and 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 right anybody who works in the medical field specifically particularly like places like intensive care units mm-hmm. emergency room emergency rooms where you see some of the you know the you see the worst day of people's lives it does something to you but on a scale like the like like co- the covid pandemic it's it's a totally it's not i would say a totally different ballgame but it's you know it's like your worst case scenario is on steroids, I guess. Yeah. That's the best way to put it. And one thing is, you know, like uh, for PTSD and depression, and and I, I guess talking to people in churches and lay and lay people, like there's a specific what they what they perceive of what depression and PTSD is, but there's actual, you know, medical definitions and criteria to mm-hmm. discuss PTSD. And for PTSD, so right now, you know, it's not so much a month out. So what a lot of people will be feeling with something we call like um, acute stress disorder, acute stress reaction. And these are, you know, feelings where it's, if you've been exposed to something, you know, you know, either in, again, either war or sexual violence, 
or just something repeated like in the emergency room where it's just death after death after death, sad phone call after sad phone call after yeah. sad phone call. You know, you can have, you know, reactions, you know, you're, you're having flashbacks. You don't want to have mm -hmm. flashbacks. You feel very like hyper, you know, high and, and very, you know, kind of, I guess, hyper alert or hyper vigilance is the proper term, but okay. super alert things. There's a whole bunch of criteria. I don't know if you want me to go into all no, of them. I mean, no, that's a good, that's a good, I personally, I mean, I've never experienced anything like what you're describing, but my parents' house, um, when I was, how old was I? 16 was actually destroyed by a tornado while we were inside of it. Ooh. And I think I definitely probably, yeah, I'm never like, I'm not diagnosed with it or anything, but sirens and certain things, like just what you're describing, you know, kind of, I'm fine. Everything's fine. But there are certain things that kind of, you know, it's like what you just described to become extremely <laughs> aware of what's going on around me and the sky and the sounds. And, you know, exactly. so I and, and, and anything that can trigger you, you see, you know, you see a poster of something and it reminds you of that time and it brings you back. Yes. So those you, you can have external uh, triggers or internal triggers, and I'm sure a psychiatrist will better explain that than me. But also the thing is, is that is the time period. So in the first month after you've been, you know, exposed or had this, you know, this, I guess, this, tra this, this traumatic experience, it's kind of called a... Um, the proper term if I, I put my notes down for this actually. <laughs> I make sure I say it right. It would be like acute stress disorder. Okay. And and I'll, and from just from you know preliminary readings, a lot of people will have that. They'll they'll tend to get better. However, if you're feeling these symptoms after a month, you know, a month on and onward, that would be you know that's where you start looking at you know the diagnosis of post traumatic stress disorder PTSD. Okay. Um, and so you know and and that's where the kind of you know, well-meaning people be like, but it's over. Like, why are you still bothered by it? Or, you know, like, but it was, you know, put it behind you, you know, keep going forward. And, you know, these are, you know, genuine, actual medical psychiatric problems. And, you know, they're real wounds that people have suffered. Right, right. You're not, it, it won't just go away is basically exactly. what it comes down to. It's not just going to, it's not the same as you're in a bad mood or something that can, that can Absolutely. change. But yeah, no, I get what you're saying for sure. And just curious, and it's fine if you're not totally sure on this, you can speculate, uh, but you mentioned, you know, there is such a high suicide, suicide rate among doctors um, and just really people in general working in those really intense kind of environments. And you mentioned depression and PTSD. You think those are the primary driving forces behind those numbers or are there other factors also unique to people working in the profession or just kind of those two things are, are what's making this such a kind of its own epidemic among healthcare professionals? For PTSD, I'm not sure. Like out, outside of COVID, I would mm -hmm. say depression for sure. So Definitely. PTSD relating to this particular highly extreme situation, but then just kind of depression in general in the dealing with death, sad people, tragedies, accidents, that sort of thing. I, I would say, yeah. And and that, and I would say burnout, you know, mm -hmm. there's a lot of outside of, you know, everyone paints us as heroes and I definitely appreciate the the gratitude among people, but you know, there's, there's the mundane stuff like, oh, I've got, you know, 200 notes piled up and then I've got to see 50 more patients. Not every one of them are happy to see you. And 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 there's, you know, the, the typical mundane things that can kind of get to you. And on top of that, you know, the, you know, the human suffering, death, illness, you know, mental illness, all that, and what you see, and it's just bombarding you every day. Of course, like, I think both depression and burnout would definitely play into that for, for doctors with depression. Gotcha. Wow. Well, I'm sure a lot of people listening, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I am personally 
shocked that that's such a high rate of suicide among doctors. So I'm sure lots of people listening are also shocked by that, which means, you know, this obviously isn't something that's very much talked about or hasn't really been addressed in a very public kind of way. And so I'm just curious, you know, why you think that is. Obviously, there is stigma around mental health in general, but I can imagine it's probably even more so true for doctors. So maybe that's contributing to why we're not really aware that this is happening? Oh, absolutely. You know, um, as doctors, you know, we're supposed to keep the ship together. You know, we're the ones taking care of people. And so, you know, we're less likely to, you know, they say doctors make the worst patients. And so doctors are less likely to, you know, reach out of, reach out for help. And if you mm-hmm. imagine, you know, so, you know, people, people who work in a lot of the intense, in the more intense units, you know, they have to work 24 hour shifts, night shifts, you know, how do you find the time to, to come and say, oh, okay, I'm going to sit down with a therapist and talk about my feelings for an hour. Oh, by the way, I still have to, you know, round on 50 patients. I have a family to feed. I've got an in-law who's sick. And so it, it just, it doesn't get, prim- at least I can, from what I, from my speculation, it doesn't get prioritized. Yeah, that, that makes sense. sense. I'm the doctor. I, sh- I should be able to take care of myself while, you know, I don't need to be a patient right now. And, and I think there's also that fear of, you know, if I say I need help, you know, will people see me as a I mean, not me personally, but well, people see the doctors as a competent doctor who they can trust to take care of them. And there's also that concern as well. Yeah, I could see that, that sort of, you know, obviously those things aren't, aren't necessary, aren't true. Like, you know, like doctors should feel like they should be able to get help and all of that. But I can understand the hesitancy because it is, makes, if you're working in the health profession, I'm sure you probably do have a different perception of yourself and what you should be able to handle. Do you think, you know, you and I are both Christians. This is a prime this is a Christian podcast. Most of our listeners are Christians. And obviously as Christians, we want to serve others as much as possible. We want to be creative and energetic and you know, uh, proactive in addressing this and this is an issue that hasn't been addressed you are you what do you think the church can do to help and you can think like large scale the church but then also just the church you know christians individual christian people how can we address this i think the most important thing is to first acknowledge that these are real conditions sure. been through many churches been through many denominations and there's definitely sir i've definitely heard you know like you know, you have to be, you don't worry about depression. All you need is Jesus and pray more. And there's almost, uh, you know, it's almost a, as if it's a failure of your faith that you seek help or are on antidepressants or anti, anti-anxiety medications. And no, not every patient who needs, who, who seeks help for depression or PTSD or any sort of mental, il- mental illness needs medication. Right. And after we all know one psychiatrist who does it anyway. Sure <laughs> right, right. Know, right. Right. There, there's definitely, again, yeah. there's definitely nuance to this conversation. But, right. Right. Over medication you know, is a thing, but also stigmatizing people who are on medication who need it is also a thing. Yes. For sure. Agree. For, for Christians is, you know, to first acknowledge that these are, these are actual, you know, these are actual diseases. These are actual problems that it's not anyone's fault. I plea with Christians to understand that you may not understand everything about this disease, but just acknowledge that they are real. Mm-hmm. It's not because of a lack of faith. You know, it's not because they're, they they sin that they got this. It's not a punishment. And yes, yeah, sin may be involved in a person's life because we're all sinners, right? Right, right. But, you know, but don't be like, oh, it's you sinned and you did this. 
And that's why you're in depression. If you just pray, you're going to be fine. And it's not that simple. You know, there's new, it's not that, it's not that simple. It's not an easy, quick fix. You know, right. it's not a laceration that you can just put a bandaid on. And especially now in COVID-19, you know, there are entire families who are decimated. You know, I could tell you stories oh. of couples who have lived their entire lives, married lives together, and then a week of each other dying of COVID. Yeah. You know, you know, people, you know, grand, you know, people losing their grandparents, their mothers, their siblings in the same family. And we talk about, you know, and, and now with COVID, the, the ability to grieve properly has been, you know, complete is, is, is interrupted. There's, you can't say goodbye. Yeah. You watch their last moments and you can't even have a proper funeral. And all this is going to derail the ability to grieve, to process, to accept that death has happened. Oh. Especially if, you know, the last time you saw your loved one, they were struggling to breathe. You didn't know if you should call 911 because you're scared to send to the hospital. Like there's a lot of emotions at play here. And then you have, you know, well-meaning Christians be like, you just need to pray in Jesus. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that just makes me angry. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, you can do this and I'm angry. Right. Actually, I actually have this. I talked to them. I actually call, asked his permission to share their story. Um, and this, I guess, shows my my own reaction to COVID is, you know, watching, talking to families was actually the hardest thing. And so I'm feeling these emotions and I come home and I try to, you know, you know, process and, you know, sort of distress. And on my praise team, we were having a conversation and a, a very, you know, very loved brother of mine was like, you know, maybe is COVID happening specifically in New York because, you know, he's pointing out some issues of sin and or, you know, a, a lack of spirituality in our state. Mm. And I just felt worst visceral reaction and I really got angry and because of that you know it turned into a fight and we actually had to call each other on the phone because of course all, all great fights happen on Facebook Messenger right <laughs> oh no um, oh gosh it was and, one of those gotcha and and then when we talked it out you know I actually understood like he was trying to you know place where are we in terms of you know kind of like the end of times and took, looking at revelations and trying to be at least spiritually aware but at the same time after talking to me he didn't realize how bad the suffering was. Right. And yet, right. you know, I'm really sorry. I, I did it at sound. I was really insensitive. I feel insensitive for, you know, talking about it and not realizing how that would affect you. And I had to apologize because in any other day, I would have been like, you know, it's a good point, but, but right, I had just right. a reaction after seeing so much suffering in and out, you know? Yeah. Well, I think what you're definitely describing is I personally, I have, uh, I have someone in my family very close to me who I've, I, grew up watching them struggle with real life depression. So I get it. It's not like, it's not just like a matter of, you know, perk up or, you know, like sometimes that's, it's, it's not that it's a real condition that they have to deal with the same that you would deal with, you know, chronic pain in some part of your body. It's, it's definitely real and I've seen it, but there is this nuance to it, right? Like you were describing, like, the reality is we do live in this world that is saturated with sin and we are sinful. We have sinful thought patterns. The people around us certainly aren't perfect and don't give us perfect advice and advise us often out of wrongful ways of thinking. So there's just this big mishmash of everybody falling short of the goodness of God, everyone falling short and trying to figure it out together, trying to do the best that you can it's not easy, you know, like I think depression, particularly because it does affect your mental state and that affects how you interact with other people just proves to be such a, a hard thing to walk with people through. But obviously that's what we're called to do as, as Christians is to walk 
through hard things with people. Absolutely. Yeah. But I think, you know, that nuance of disease, disaster, death, those are all things that result from the fall. But of course, I can totally understand where you're coming from of like, man, I am literally up close and personally witnessing people's hearts and families and lives being decimated. It's not the most... It's not the most helpful comment and <laughs> not one that's really easy to kind of be like, yeah, sure. Yeah, exactly. There's, so acknowledge the church needs to acknowledge that this is real. Anything else you think that maybe we could do better? I think also, you know, being present, you know, just 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 being present. And especially in a time where, you know, we're, we're really isolated. We can't, you know, go out. We can't, you know, do the things. We can't meet up with family, you know, just being present in someone's life. I think one of the nicest things one of my best friends asked me, she's like, how can I, you know, she asked me how what I was going through at work. And she asked me, you know, how could I, how can I support you on this time? And I didn't have a great answer. I just said, Hey, just be there. But just knowing that someone wants to walk with me through this is important, you know, and, and knowing that, you know, if I've had a bad day at work and now we're seeing, you know, their cases are popping up with children with COVID and I'm a pediatrician. So that has yeah. me, concerned you know just knowing just knowing that someone i have a friend who is a christian sister who's ready to say like hey i'm here when you need me you call i think really important right it's not and and of course you know praying for someone and praying over them is really important but you know don't let that stop right you know what you know they that actions is dead right don't just pray for you and not be there and have your phone open for them when they need to call you and i think that's where the church can really show up and say like, Hey, we're here to love. We're here to be there. And we can't may not be there, you know, physically for you, but we're here for you. That's very good. And I'll just add this little encouraging note for anybody who's listening, just because like I said, I am someone who has lived in a household with depression. It feels sometimes like, you know, there is just no hope and you feel very helpless and it's very frustrating. But I think I, my own life is just, uh, I've seen that it's, it's, there's no easy fix. It's not fast, but by God's grace over years and years and years, I have seen someone, I won't say that they're healed. I mean, I think they probably still have to do, have to work through feelings that they don't want to have, but that their life is not so severely affected by this. So just, just by a depression, um, I think if there is anybody listening out there who is in this situation where, you know, there's somebody that you you really do love them, you really do want the best for them, but you just feel like, you know, how is this ever going to be different? How is this ever going to change? It very well might not in the near future, but as Christians, we are called to have hope. We're certainly not nihilists. We're not, we are not fatalists. We believe that God gives us the ability to endure hard things and is working things together for good. But just, I think sometimes we think it should happen a lot faster than God does. (laughs) (laughs) So just my little little thought on that. So this is really important. I'm really glad that you're bringing this conversation up so more people can have it, especially kind of surrounding the medical community, because I do think that's going to be a big surprise to a lot of people. I do want to ask you just a little more, this is kind of more, a little less about mental health, more about just sort of what's happening in the way people are dealing with this pandemic. It could have something to do with mental health, I suppose. You talk about how it's a coping (laughs) mechanism or something, but there does seem to be, at least on the internet, (laughs) I don't encounter it as much in real life. I see it more on the internet. 
this this strange insistence that you either have to fully believe that this virus is the worst thing that has ever happened. We need to shut down every single thing. We cannot possibly do anything ever again. Like that's that's one option that you have. Or the other one is that this virus is completely and totally made up and not like, you know, it's, it's this overblown thing. All the numbers of people who are dying are not real. You know, there's like these two worlds of like either we must never live our lives again because this virus is so bad or we must believe that this virus isn't even happening. And why do you think that that is the case? Because I, I think we probably can agree, and a lot of people listening can agree, that like this virus is obviously real. It's taking people's lives. It's a big deal. It's a big enough deal that measures have to be taken. But on the flip side, you can think that and still think there are better solutions than shutting everything down. That seems to be like a real position that people could have, but are for some reason choosing these two strange, extreme positions. I guess and just from looking at the internet and, you know, tro- you know, looking through the pages, uh, I think one thing I think where I'm noticing is it's just really also just what you're experiencing, right? Even on my drive home, right? It's springtime in New York. It's beautiful. And it just doesn't seem like it's a war zone. And all I have to do is drive 30 minutes into the hospital and see, you know, suffering and pain. And and even if I'm not managing these patients directly, I'm there putting in lines and talking to families. And it's it's a lot of, you know, but as soon as you step out, it's beautiful. Right. It right. It's such a, it's such a, it's such a, like a, it's like, it's like jolting. It's like, did I just really come from a hospital where everyone's not, where everyone's in pain? Like, yes. What, what? Yeah. So I think that's a good point because you're, yeah, you're talking about real life, which right for most people you go out and your life is relatively normal aside from, you know, everything being closed or something like that, kind of an eerie feeling in that way. But uh, my experience in watching how this pandemic has unfolded is at the beginning, I felt like a lot of people were fairly receptive to the idea that this is very severe. This is very extreme. We need to take measures. We need to stay home. We need to do this. But then, of course, the great internet (laughs) starts pumping out more and more like, you know, I'm sure you've probably seen there's lots of TikTok videos with like nurses doing Mm. choreographed dances, you know, like sort of these things that you see, you see something like that. And of course, if you're annoyed that you're having to be sheltering in place and you're told all the, all the hospitals are flowing, overflowing, and then you see dot, you see people reenacting the Titanic in in the ER or whatever, then you decide, oh, well, this is just totally overblown. You know, I think, do you think that's kind of what's happening is for most people, they're very removed. They're not in a situation that you're in where they're actually experiencing it. So they have to go off of tons of conflicting pictures and text and images of this on the internet. I can kind of agree with that. And also, I think, you know, the majority of the people, especially, you know, outside of New York, right, they're, they are feeling the economic effects of, right. of the pandemic, right? And they're going to feel those effects before they feel the effects of being in a hospital all the time or yeah. working part time or per diem or full time. And so, you know, right, like, I'm, I'm very blessed to be working, you know, as much as it is a, a difficult, you know, it's a difficult time, right? And, 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 you know, before I continue, like, my residents work way harder than me, they work more hours, so big kudos to them, right? But we all have paychecks. Yeah, right. We're right. getting paid for this, right? And so, you know, and I kind of have to remind myself, like, what would it look like if I went 10 weeks without a paycheck? 
Yeah. 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 That's definitely. And, and that's where the nuances, right? It's like, and, and so realize, and I did actually, when I, when I worked overseas, I was without a paycheck for three months. Wow. Um, scared. And I saved up for it because I knew it was coming. Right. But you know, this pandemic gave no one any, you know, there was, you know, no one had time to save up for a four month, you know, a furlough of not being paid, right? No one had time for that. And so I, and because I've been through that, I can understand that, you know, unless you're, unless you're in the hospital, you don't see it, you know, you, you, you the real effect on you is I don't have money to feed my family. Right. And then on the other hand, those of us who are working in the hospital, we see the devastation and we know that these mental, the things we talked about pre just a few minutes ago about mental health and depression and, you know, having your grief derailed, these are going to affect families for months, if not years down the line. And we're trying to prevent that. And right. it's just, there's, there's nuance and it just, and then of course the loudest wheels are the grief. What is it? The one that, the, oh, the, yeah. that the uh, <laughs> shoot, what is that expression? The, like the loudest, the loudest wheel gets the grease. <laughs> oh, maybe. Neil gets the green or the oil. Oh, Lord. <laughs> I know what you're saying. I got but, you. you. Know, so, and, and so but these conversations were nuance and moderation and, 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 and people admitting like, hey, I don't know the answer because this is a lot more complex than we realize. That's not going to take the front. Right. But, you know, really, you know, sound bites and angry people and TikToking nurses or people with guns in Michigan, mm. you know, trying to make protests and then doctors, you know, nurses standing in the way of the, those are going to, those are what's going to be on the news and, right. and Facebook and whatnot. And, and our conversations, like these aren't going to be what we're talking about, right? We're not attacking each other. Right. We're not, other, you know, you, you know, we're not, we're not, we're not like labeling each other or saying like, this is a, like, we, we're acknowledging that there are, you know, a lot of consequences to COVID, you know, emotionally, economically, um, health wise, and yeah. trying to sort these things, they're not, there's no simple answer to it. Right. No, I think that's a very good point. Obviously, the more extreme, the more, the more attention very often. And I do, I like to think there are these very extreme voices and I see them, I see them pop up on the internet, but I do, like I said, more so in real life, I feel like most of the people I talk to have had a very like reasonable approach to this. We're all kind of concerned about the same things. Obviously, no one wants anyone to die. <laughs> the talking point that like you just you only care about the economy. You want people to die. It's not helpful <laughs> because most no, absolutely not. I don't know anyone who wants anyone to die. But on the flip side, saying this isn't a big deal. This is just like the flu. We should all just distrust everything we've heard about it. That's not helpful either. Most of the people. Thankfully, most of the people, at least I've encountered, are somewhere in the middle of this is serious, but we also can not have an, a functioning economy. So what, you know, that's that's the question is sort of what is that going to look like? And I think if we try to have huge, sweeping, vast answers to that, it's probably not going to work because Kansas is very different from New York <laughs> and, you know, all, all that good stuff. So that's, that's a whole, that's its own for a long conversation. <laughs> so we'll leave that to the, to the experts. But I think, I think you're probably right that a lot of this has to do with just extreme points of view, getting more airtime than what hopefully the reasonable majority is thinking and feeling. I would hope so. Yes. Um, and I also think, um, I'm not sure if it's really uh, pointed out a lot. I think a lot of, uh, a lot of health, myself included, you know, the last pandemic we had was the Spanish flu in 1916, 1918. 
And the second wave was deadlier than the first. Mm. And for us, we're like, you know, I don't know if there's going to be a second wave. I anticipate, I, I suspect there will be. Yeah. I could be wrong. But the problem is, how do you, how do you bet on that? These are people's lives. Yeah. And, you know, you want to try to protect people as much as you can. And you want them to have a living and be able to support and put food into their family's mouths. But at the same time, we can see from the past that the second, the second wave of the Spanish flu was way worse than the first. And looking at what happened and during our first wave in Europe, when we were about to work, I worked through the surge, like, you know, how do you handle that? Right. Um, and, and data is really easily to be, is really easily manipulated, right? When people talk about the mortality rate of flu versus, you know, Corona, they're like, oh, it's about the same. And 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 to be fair, if I check the numbers, they aren't. They're actually not that off, far, far off. I think. Yeah. Don't quote me on that. But what what I think people need to realize is that the flu deaths were over a whole year. These COVID deaths, you're you know putting you know in the span of weeks. You know how does how do you how does a healthcare system sustain? How, how can you sustain that? Right. You know, at some point, someone's going to make very horrible decisions of who gets treatment and who doesn't. Yeah. Um, or there's not, there's simply no one, there's simply no, you know, there's not enough resources and we definitely don't want that to happen. No. And then and if there is a second, but how do you know when the second wave is going to hit? <laughs> if be a second wave. Yeah. What if we open too soon? What if we don't open too soon? And those are really hard questions. Being in the in the in being working in emergency room, working with doctors in the emergency room, we definitely don't want to see, you know, a second wave. And if we do see a second wave, we surely hope that we don't see it like you no, know, like the 1916 pandemic where the second wave was way deadlier than the first. Yeah. <sighs> no easy answers. One of the reasons why, man, I am I am so thankful that I I'm so thankful for my faith in this. I can't imagine trying to go through this without an understanding of who God is and that he promises to be present in suffering and work through suffering. I mean, it's not easy to see. It's not easy to to understand how it all works together. But this is, I think probably maybe this is true for you too. We're probably similar in age. In my lifetime, one of the most alarming things, one of the most... One of the things that has made me the most feel the most vulnerable and really kind of realize how little I can control and how much I thought I could control that I can't and just really have to lean on God. Absolutely. It's hard. Um, that doesn't mean, of course, like do nothing. That's not what I'm saying. Absolutely. But you know, and, you know, and, Christian to Christian. And that doesn't mean go, you know, God's with me. I'm going to be totally responsible in someone's life, you know. Mm. <laughs> You know, with prayer and discernment and, right. you know, and, and never before, you know, you know, Psalm 23, you know, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And, you know, like for the first time, I can see how death can cast a shadow, right? We just look at death like someone died and their immediate family is in pain. But now to see it on this scale, like death is going to cast a shadow on doctors, on nurses, on people, on families, you know, on, on EMTs, on, on, on ambulance work, on, you know, ACL, I'm sorry, just like yeah. <laughs> the paramedics and all these people. I was thinking like ACS versus BLS. We call them, sorry. And so like, those are, this will definitely cast a shadow. And, you know, I, I'm just reminding you for Christians, you know, again, you know, God did it when Christ was praying. He never asked that we would be taken out from the world, but just be protected from it. So we're never protected from the evil one, right? So, you know, we are going to go through, you know, pain and suffering and the pandemic is a consequence of living in an imperfect and broken world. Crisis, you know, like, you know, take heart, I have overcome the world. Yeah. And so this is a time for Christians to say like, yes, this is painful. Yes, we don't know. Yes, there is fear. 
So let's be the church. Let's come together. So, you know, for churches in this in, in hard hit areas, like, hey, this is your time to, you know, send food to send food to hospitals, call if you know a frontliner, you know, call them and be like, hey, you know, can I pray for you? What do you need me to pray for? For churches outside of the of hard hit areas where the economic consequences are more severely felt than let's say the medical consequences. So, hey, you know, make sure your local food pantry isn't empty. If you know families who are, are hurting, you know, be there, provide, you know, provide some relief. I, I'm I'm astounded at the pictures I see of the South where, you know, the food bank lines are six miles long. Where is the church? Right. Where are you? One thing maybe hopefully this conversation has highlighted is why it makes, I think, you know, maybe some of the division happening in our country is some people really hyper-focused on the medical cost, the medical devastation, and then people hyper-focused on the economic devastation. And I think what we're highlighting here is that there's very valid reasons for both of those camps to be concerned about what they are concerned about, but just kind of yelling at each other (laughs) and um, being angry at each other for not caring about the same things to the same level doesn't really make sense. And instead, it's this is an opportunity for Christians particularly to come together to try to serve those two camps in the best ways that they can. And that might take a little bit of creativity. Um, Obviously with like social distancing and (laughs) different things, it's going to look different than it has before, but you know, that's what we do. We have to rise to the occasion. I was really blessed. My church, you know, we were talking and my church, you know, provided dinner for one of the overnight shifts. So the teams that were on that night and, you know, my, my, my department was super grateful, but I think one thing that kind of almost discouraged me was they were surprised the church would do that. You know, we have restaurants providing food, right? A lot of restaurants are providing food, but they're surprised the church would do that. And I'm like, why should this be a surprise? Shouldn't the response be, of course they would, they're Christians. Right, right. Well, and then of course, you're also, you're based in New York. So you've been, you've probably seen the, the strange little conflict between the state of New York and Samaritan's Purse and the, you know, there, there's an example of Christians trying very hard to do what they can and man being seriously slapped in the face for it. (laughs) No good deed goes unpunished for sure. You know, crazy. and I, I I was horrified when I saw that (laughs) and very embarrassed for New York. You know, they, you you can disagree with our beliefs, but the fact is we are called to love. Yeah. Well, and my goodness, you bill yourselves as inclusive and you know, it's like, (laughs) you know, (laughs) there's a lot of Christians in the world. I can't, I can't. Um, yeah. But, you know, but that's, again, we, we don't do these things because we're going to get accolades or right, even appreciation, even where we thank you. We're doing them because God called us to love, right? Yeah. The ultimate rejection was crucified Christ, right? Yeah. And yeah. God didn't, we didn't get, he didn't get a thank you for that. Right, right. I think, <laughs> no, you know, I mean, yeah, we thank you, but at that time, no one was thanking him. <laughs> yeah, we should, we should, I think there's a place for some, we can really, we can validly criticize New York for their treatment of Christians, but we shouldn't be surprised of that. You know, like that, like you're getting at it's as Christians, you're not doing it for a pat on the back. So shouldn't be utterly scandalized when you don't get one, but. And, and, you know, and, and still to that day, you know, Franklin Graham still came up and said, thank you, you know, and, yeah. and they were invited by Sinai to come and help out. And, and I'm just really grateful that, 
you know, they probably helped out more than the, you know, than the USS Comfort. Right, know? right, yeah. exactly. And, and I just, you know, and as discouraging as that may be, there's still a lot of people who are grateful for the work that Christians do, right? I can, I've had plenty of residents, you know, Sherry, or not plenty, but, you know, they scare that, you know, some of them don't believe or they disagree with me or they have, they, they walked away from a faith or they have a different, they hold different beliefs, but they're still grateful that a church would take the time to try to figure out that, hey, a, a night team is hungry. Let's feed them. Yeah. So I sent you, Melissa, some questions before we started talking. And somebody, this article from Christianity Today that is aimed at Christians, um, sort of almost like a rebuke to Christians for sharing what the author calls conspiracy theories, which some of them definitely are. Some of them, you know, we could we could get into this. Some of them, I think, are more gray area, not really pertaining to the virus, more like other things he listed. But basically, the author, Ed Setzer, is making the claim that when Christians share conspiracy theories on social media, he's thinking specifically about COVID-19. This is really damaging to Christian testimony. So they wanted your thoughts on that as a doctor. So let us know. What are you thinking on that article? Sure. I re- I think that the most important, the damaging your testimony is, you know, bringing reproach to the name of Christ is, is a huge thing that I think, you know, Christians are not fully aware of how, how that can, how, how their people can perceive. And, right. you know, in my own testimony, like when I first started working in the emergency room in New York city, you know, the expletives would fly out of my mouth because, you know, <laughs> you know, there are some really, really stressful cases that you go through Heck yeah, and, sure. and they, they, they just fly out of my mouth. And, you know, I was, when I was, I went, I recently went through a season of, you know, disciplining and, and kind of pruning where God was really pruning me. And God's like, you know, you expect people to believe your faith, you know, like, well, pr- you know, your life has to show it. There, there, there's a uh, Ruby Zacharias wrote, there's, there's five gospels, right? There's the four in the Bible and the one that you, and your life is the uh, fifth one. Wow. That's really good. I've been a little bit more open with my, my residents and be like, Hey, you're, you're going to see me sin for real, <laughs> but I'll, I am trying, you know, this is my faith. My faith matters a lot to me. And you know, I obviously wouldn't do what I do if I didn't believe if I didn't believe that God put me here for a reason. Yeah. And and they'll see me mess up and I but being among them and showing that, you know, love and looking out for them and, and still saying like, hey, you know, like, whoops, I said the F word. Sorry about that. But you know, Jesus <laughs> loves us still, so, you know, let's try to we combat, you know, and I think they're more you know, people aren't stupid, right? They'll appreciate honesty, right? Absolutely. I know we're all imperfect. They're the first people to say no one's perfect, right? Non Christians will say that. So I think, so when they see like Pete Christians, like going off what they see is the deep end that that's like, why would I believe that? Right. When they're more right. likely to believe someone who's like, Hey, I'm a, don't get it right all the time. I'm trying. God's going to make me a better person as I go through this. I think that's more believable. Right. And then kind of like puts, that puts, it says it puts a lot of people off. Maybe this plays into some of, I don't know if you've seen it, but I definitely seen in, I don't know if it's true in all evangelical circles or Catholic or whatever denomination you come from. I think there is this movement for like this kind of anti-intellectualism where, mm. you know, like, you know, people take that verse in Corinthians where he's like, you know, God made the foolishness of this world to confound the wise. Right. And everyone's like, see, like intellectualism. No, it's like, no, no, no. Like, you know, like, yes, you know, God took something that the world seems foolish to save the world. Right. Like, you know, the Messiah came from the armpit of the Roman Empire from Israel. Right. Like, like, like yeah, sure. It, right. it doesn't make on an intellectual level, but doesn't mean through it all of of academics right. oh definitely smart. people run with that and and you know christians run with that and it brings reproach to god mm. to god's name 
I don't know if that made if any of that made sense, but no, I, I, I totally understand. I like what you're saying. I actually like what you're saying a lot more <laughs> than I liked the Christianity Today article. Obviously, the rebuke for people to not share false information is good. You definitely shouldn't do that. <laughs> you shouldn't do that if you're yeah. a Christian. You shouldn't do that if you're not a Christian. But I think what you're getting at, sort of this like anti-intellectualism, this idea that just have faith, don't live in fear. It's like the Bible has a lot more to say about how to live your life than those two things. Like, yes, those are foundational, but God also calls you to be wise. He calls you to be discerning. The Bible is full of all kinds of mandates for interpersonal interactions, for renewing your mind. Like, it's not, it's not a book for anti-intellectual people. (laughs) Paul, you know, Paul was, you know, a highly educated uh, religious figure before he, before his conversion. And bringing that back where, you know, I guess to tying it to COVID. So you have people spreading this and, you know, for doctors like me, we see it, we see, I seen the advertisements for pandemic. I've seen a lot of that. And, and remember like all the things talked about exhaustion, you know, seeing sadness, you know, I, you know, and on my own, my own experience, I can still hear the crying and the words of what those families have said to me to this day. Yeah, I still remember every single thing. And then, so I have to come home. And I find Christians on the internet spreading this. I'm like, shouldn't you be helping me? I can totally, totally get that. I think the one thing that I wish maybe the article had delved into, because I think it's the missing piece in all this, to pretend like this isn't happening or that it's a a massive conspiracy theory is unhelpful. In In a different realm, which I'm not quite sure the article makes the distinction, to talk about some of the the straight reporting that's been going on, the discrepancies between numbers. You know, I think there are things that legitimately people can ask questions about that are, you know, like there's, there's room for that, but then there's the more extreme side of things, which I think is what he's getting at. But I think so much of this is fueled by a distrust for the media more than necessarily a distrust of, well, actually I shouldn't speak for everybody. I know at least the people I interact with. Much of this has to do with people feeling like they can't trust the information that they're getting. And that just seems to be something that is only escalating and getting worse every year because there's so much partisanship. Like this really shouldn't be like a partisan thing, but it seems like now it's like, oh, well, if you care about the economy, then obviously you love and worship Trump. And if you, if you're really worried about COVID-19, then you're a liberal sheep and you want the government to control you. (laughs) You know, there's just like these two crazy camps that nobody really (laughs) wants to be in. We'd all like to just sort of know what's happening. And so I think the article kind of misses that point that like maybe this is happening because increasingly people can't trust what they read. They feel like it's all slanted one way or the other, which in the most cases it is. Not in every case, but I think the main the main point and what you're getting at is definitely to the Christian, the the somewhat popular tendency among Christians to oversimplify this in terms of just you should have faith or this is obviously the devil trying to get you to be fearful and trying to control you and all this and that it's not nuanced enough it's not as honoring to god as it could be yeah i i think there's there's a bit of everything right um there's a bit of you know everybody wants to be that that one investigative reporter who (laughs) blows the conspiracy right right because that's that makes for great movies but 
you know, and everybody wants to be that one miracle worker that, that figures out the truth when everyone does it and makes you feel special. And I can understand the whole, you know, want to be the underdog against the big corporations. And I can understand some of that. And there's also, I think also a genuine desire to try to want to help by finding out the truth. Right. And I think there's, there's, there's definitely a bit of that. But I, I think we can ask, you know, you know, questions about, you know, there, there, there should be difficult questions that should be asked during this health crisis. But to bring it back is at the end of this, you know, there are people suffering, right? And I, I hate, I hate that, you know, we may be oversimplifying, we over, in fact, over spiritualize it, right? You know, mm. Jesus provided everything, you know, he, he spoke in parables, he spoke, he spoke directly, he took action when he had to play with kids when he had to, right? Jesus he, didn't just, to, he was, yeah, he was, he was with kids right very good and, point he and he came up he didn't just come up and say you need me i resurrected in three days we're done bye you know <laughs> he met people where they were and and in all this and to talk about statistics i i think a really great quote is you know human s- statistics are human people with the tears wiped off talking to patients before they get intubated as a doctor sometimes you can tell when they're not going to make it you yeah. kind of can tell. Right. And you know it. You know that their last moments are not going to be spent with their families. They're going to be spent with you guys, with us. Yeah. In it a lot of ER. And 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 that's suffering. That's painful. And that that's and there's something called moral injury where you're bearing witness or you're a part of something that, you know, it, it breaks every fiber of your being. Like, this is not what we what we do. You know, do no harm. We don't want to hurt people like this. We don't want them to die alone and in pain. But this is what this is the situation and it, it creates moral injury and the people who are at the other end where they don't say goodbye to loves and then here please like don't diminish the suffering there is suffering and you diminish that pain right. and you make it like our pain isn't worth it or our pain is not as bad as we say it is and yeah. i'm speaking for doctors for nurses for anybody in the hospital for people who love them and who who lost their loved ones, right? Um, and in the medical community, we've lost our own as well. I uh, where I trained, I lost my head. We lost the head nurse where I trained. Now, this woman was there when I was a medical student. Wow. She was there forty eight years, and I can't even grieve. There's no funeral. So to me, it's like she's. I just didn't see her because I'm not at that hospital anymore. But we're losing people we love that we work with. Your work, you know, in the medical field, yeah. people you work with is your second family, right? Or for me, my third because my church is the second. I guess at the the heart of it is I understand that we should. You know, we should always ask questions. We should think critically. We should be careful of how we how we show our testimony. Mm-hmm. But at the heart of it, Jesus called us to love. Yeah. And this is remember we talk about PTSD and depression. This is going this is going to be a thing that's going to go on for months from now. Even when things seem to normalize, and I and I say normalize with quotation marks, but like if they ever normalize. Thank you so much, Melissa, for talking to me about this and just lending this perspective. Yours is particularly unique and there's lots of people in the United States who are not going to have such a up close and personal at this table of real suffering and real sadness, but also real hope, I think. I hope people are encouraged listening to you as a Christian doctor, as someone who has seen this, who's someone who is being very honest and open, that there's hope for the other side of this. And that doesn't look like some easy little happy ending, slapping a Band-Aid on it. It's obviously going to be a lot of walking through difficult stuff, but God is with us. And we don't say that in a light and flippant way. We say it because we really mean it. Thank you so much for being on the podcast.